Welcome back to Time for Heroes podcast. This week's guest is comedian Nick Helm. Nick Helm is a regular on 8 out of 10 Cracks Does Countdown. We spoke about that as well as his early life growing up, how he got into comedy, his free series sitcom Uncle and his other BBC series Heavy Entertainment and towards the end we spoke about training a conservative baroness to become a stand-up comedian, how Nick dealt with that. Also at the end Nick picked his four heroes to come for dinner so I hope you enjoy the podcast and there'll be one coming around very soon. Thanks. If you tell me about your early life growing up, where you grew up, what school was like, things like that, and how you kind of initially came to be where in the profession that you're in. Um, well, so I was born, I was born in London. Um, I was born at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London. Mm-hmm. Um which I think is within the Bow Bells, which means that I'm technically a Cockney. Um, and I live in North London now. Um, and uh, from my roof, you can see, well, in actual fact, just if you if you leave the front of my building, uh, there's the cinema that my mum used to take me to when I was little. So I live really close to that. So I kind of like moved away from London when I was uh, about seven or eight to St Albans and um, uh, went to you know, uh, junior school and secondary school in St Albans, um, sixth form and all my life I felt like I wanted to move back to London and um, I moved back to sort of, I've lived all sort of around London, I lived North, North London, South London, and here and there. And then I eventually um, moved back to kind of like my, not my neighborhood, but like near to where I, walking distance to where I lived, uh, where I grew up in Finsbury Park. And yeah, so I sort of like came back. I'd never really felt like I was at home anywhere. Um, You know, there's sort of like that nagging, you get like a nagging doubt. Yeah. You you live in somewhere and you're never really completely settled, and um, and then when I moved back to North London, it sort of everything sort of made a bit more sense to me. Right. Um, and uh, so, what was school like for you back then? Was that did you was that an enjoyable experience? I, re- I really liked school when I. I mean, I really love I really loved school when I was in London. So um, up until I remember there was. Um, you know, I there was like a big gang of us kids that were growing up um, uh, near Finsbury Park, and um, you know we were little, um, and and I just remember that we were all good friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I moved. When I moved, um, I suddenly realised that. Well, I was suddenly like an outsider and I'd never been that before. Right. And I and I never really I don't think I really ever fit in um to St Albans. St Albans was sort of like a different uh, it was like a change of pace, you know. 
um, Lon- London in the 80s. I mean, I think one of the reasons we moved was because uh, there was a lot of violence around where we lived. Mm-hmm. It was a fairly rough area. I mean, it's pretty rough now, but I think back at the time it was it was it was it was really rough and um there's a lot of prostitution around where we were um and uh, i remember it was the mid 80s so it was like the height of the aids epidemic and i remember we used to have school assemblies about because we'd have a lot of kind of um uh drug addicts that would um uh shoot up in the in Mm-hmm. either in the playground or by the playground and they'd leave their needles and we'd pick them up and play with them <laughs> and so we used huh. to have um we used to have assemblies about um you know not picking up needles and stuff and i think also my parents worked in central london and so it took ages for them to sort of like uh, travel from one side of london to the other and it was actually quicker for them to travel from outside of london into london right. so there's like a load of reasons mm-hmm. so we ended up moving to st albans like london was very sort of like multicultural and you know diverse everyone's talking about diversity now but like london was you know really kind of um a huge mix of different kind of nationalities and ethnicities and that's where I sort of grew up until about seven so when right. I moved to St Albans which was predominantly white and middle class it was a bit of a culture shock and um, I went from somewhere where everyone was very different to somewhere where um, uh, everyone was very similar they're all very skinny skinny yeah. white boys that that played football in um, uh, at break time, and I was sort of—I mean, I was—I was sort of overweight, um, which I wasn't in London. But we, uh, but we moved on over a weekend. So on the Friday, I was just one of the one of the kids, and then on the Monday, I was the fat kid, and right. I was like, "Well, you know, like so." A lot changed in a very short amount of time, and it sort—I of, never really kind of got over that shock to the system. Did that have negative impacts in? Like, did you feel as if you were bullied or anything? Or just yeah, but it was it was verbal stuff. Yeah. Um and I had people follow me home and stuff like that, which was kind of but like it was it was just um it was just like a real shock because in, in some ways it was kind of like uh there wasn't drugs and prostitution, so in some ways it was a step up, but in other ways it was kind of uh difficult to sort of fit in and um and so like for a negative point of view i guess it took me a while to sort of make for it i mean i joy i i came to st albans just at the end of like one school process so maybe it was like the last term of junior school and then we moved to oh maybe it was top infants and then we moved over to junior school and then i had kind of like whatever that was and then uh and then by the time we got to secondary school yeah i mean i really just never really fit in i didn't I, I wasn't like a complete loner i did i was a bit of a loner but um but i did have you know friends and people that stuck up for me and stuff yeah um and i'm still friends with you know i was um i'm still friends with uh my friend rebecca who's like my oldest friend and we met in uh in, in like primary school infant school we've known each other for what 33 years now um 
so it's kind of like so there's there was lots of good stuff that happened you know i always feel bad because for my parents because i've never sort of like let it go that i hated moving <laughs> but i do think that if i'd have stayed in london it could have got a lot worse um and then i didn't really kind of like uh make like proper friends until maybe year 10 or 11 when i started doing drama right um and I think as a result of that, I sort of retreated into myself a lot. I wasn't into football. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't, you know, my dad watches um, uh, like tournaments and World mm -hmm. Cup and stuff like that. And my whole family do, but they don't have a team and I didn't have a team. And um, it wasn't something I was drawn to or particularly interested in. So I sort of retreated into myself and I had quite a big imagination and I'd sort of... Um, you know, make up stories and then later on I'd write stories and, um, and I, you know, I would sort of like make believe a lot of stuff. So, so kind of, I guess what I lacked in, uh, in sort of a social life, I kind of made up for in my imagination. Yeah. And so you find a lot when, of I that, when I found, you find a lot of that with yeah, people kind of, you're either kind of social or you're, you're kind of happy within yourself and kind of you can please yourself with your imagination. So, um, yeah, so that's yeah. the type of person you were. Well, I think I was very lonely as well, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, I sort of, I got to a point where I didn't really need other people. Yeah. Um, and I sort of had given up on that. Like I, I found secondary school awful. I hated it a lot. Um, and then uh, I, I, I'd miss a lot of school because I wasn't well. And then I got sort of diagnosed with ME. Right. And, um, but I still can't work out whether I actually had ME or whether um, I was sort of diagnosed with it as kind of like uh, an like an easy sort of solution mm -hmm. you know or at least we got a name for it and and then because of that it was sort of like a vicious side a self-fulfilling prophecy because if i was if i was ill i ended up taking a lot of time off and then when right. i went back to school everyone would sort of like treat me like an outsider because i hadn't been at school and you know it sort of and then that made me not want to be at school mm -hmm. so i can mind that as well being because you're the same age as me, aren't you? You're 40. Um, yeah, yeah. I can mind Green Chill having a storyline um, about one of the characters of me. So that would have been around right. about the time you were growing up. So it was it was probably like a, a big deal then. And I, that, that's yeah, maybe I, a lot to do with your diagnosis. You don't you don't hear a lot about it anymore, and it's yeah. also it feels it feels I don't really remember secondary school that much because um, up until up until a point because um, I really hated it and um, I didn't really feel like I fit in. But then when I started doing art and drama and English, I was always really good at English. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was actually good at stuff, um, I, I really enjoyed it. And then when I did art and drama, that's sort of like a well, drama, certainly sort of for a social thing. So I met a lot of people and, and it was, and it was that really changed everything 
because uh, you know they're all the very you know when you're at school um it was weird everyone stuck within their year group so you know at break time at lunch it would be you'd, you'd be stuck with your year group um except for if you were in the into art and drama uh and music because everyone hung around the art and music block yeah. and it would be all different years and it seemed like they were all of the people that were sort of a bit of the outsiders of their years but to me they were older kids and they all look really cool mm -hmm. and you know um and whereas my year group used to go to like house parties at the weekend you know the kids from the art and music department would go to the pub and so yeah. i started hanging around with them and then it, i was i was told that i was like one of the losers and you know when i started hanging around with the art and music and drama kids and we were all doing like really grown up things and we weren't losers at all. And, and it was, it was just really interesting because you kind of like go, you know, there's one group, you know, the group of all the cool kids were being dropped off around each other's houses by their mums on a Friday night. And we'd be walking into town and hanging out with each other. And I, I was friends with like seven, you know, I was like 14, 15 and I was hanging out with 17, 18 year olds. And we were just all into like the same stuff. Yeah, it's um, funny then, isn't it, how your world kind of turns and it's kind of like that kind of moment that you realise how fucked up everything is, isn't it? it? It was like this big secret that we'd sort of like walked into because, you know, if you, if you weren't in, at school, I mean, we had a really good drama department and art department and all that, but at school really, um, if you weren't into sport and you weren't into PE, there was no real way for you to kind of like excel at something. Mm. Um, and so then when I started doing kind of drama and plays and stuff, I, you know, I got like small parts in plays all the way through uh, school. Um, and then I didn't do it for a few years because I was terrible at learning lines and I like lost my nerve for it. And then I started getting, you know, big parts and then leads in school plays. Mm -hmm. and then I just you know I, it was sort of like the the arty farty equivalent of being good at football and then all of a sudden you know you're kind of like succeeding and um, excelling at something in kind of like this public arena mm -hmm. and people kind of like you know teachers are kind are nicer to you and um you know, people are going, oh, you're good at something. And you're kind of like going, and you're discovering that you're good at something and it's something that you really enjoy. Mm -hmm. and, it must, it um, must be, like, it must be absolutely amazing for your confidence then, things like that and kind of realising that you're good I at think, something. I think so. I mean, like, but I was, because I, I was, so, because I was into all these th things. I mean, I was in, um, I formed a band and I would write, I, you know, I, I, I look back on it now, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. I wrote something like 160 songs in a very, in like a year or a two year period mm -hmm. that, um, you know, if I was that prolific now, I, do you know what I mean? It was just like, it was like, I used to just write a, a song a day and, um, and I wasn't even studying music at school. Uh, and then I was in like uh, the, the, all the school plays and um, I was writing theatre and I was good at English and I was kind of, it was all the, 
all the creative stuff. If it was anything to do with science or maths or learning a language, I was absolutely atrocious, totally shit at all of that stuff. Uh, and it was just the yeah, creative stuff. Um, like I've got kind of like an encyclopedic capacity to learn stuff about films. Right. So if I hear something about a film, it will go in my head. And um, uh, and I, I always think that if I had that capacity for like biology or chemistry, I would have been like yeah. an amazing scientist. Or you'd be, you'd be just, helping at some, some amount in this pandemic, you'd be... You'd be a bloody millionaire. Absolutely, I'd be a millionaire. Um, but um, but I just didn't. I wasn't naturally drawn to any of that. So I mm. was only I was only interested in all this stuff. Um, uh, but that's where I kind of like I found. Um, I, I made friends. Uh, I found my confidence. Um, and uh, yeah, it really sort of like saved me. I had an amazing drama teacher called uh, Louise uh, Wallace, Louise Howes, Miss Howes, but she got married, so she's called Louise Wallace. Um, And uh, she decided when we were in, mm, so it would have been 2017, so when we were 16, so year 11, upper sixth form, when I was upper sixth form. Mm -hmm. No, upper year 11, before sixth form. So she decided, she kind of like convinced the head head teacher to let her take, um, the way it worked, the way school plays worked was you'd audition in September, you'd rehearse up until Christmas, and then in January, a school play would be put on. Um, in 1996 to 1997, we did Romeo and Juliet, and I was the prince in Romeo and Juliet. And um, my teacher, um, drama teacher, uh, you know, I think it was one of her dreams to take a production up to the Edinburgh Festival. And she must have been about 25 at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she convinced the head teacher as like an extracurricular thing to take up a bunch of kids to the Edinburgh Festival. and it was sort of like everyone from about 12 to 18. And um, yeah, and uh, so we she abridged it to, so it was like an hour and a half. It went from two hours to an hour and a half. And we all right, adapted it and trained. And then for that summer, uh, the summer of 1997, we all um, rehearsed uh, a, a, a bridged production of Shakespeare and we took it up to the Edinburgh Festival I think we did a week we took it up to the Edinburgh Festival so we rehearsed we had to kind of like we're at venue 45 which was St Paul's Kirk and um, St Paul's Church which is just near um, uh, the uh, main train station in Edinburgh Waverley Waverley yeah yeah so when you come out, there's there's sort of like a church door that's just just under the bridge, um, mm-hmm. on the other side, of the, uh, and then there's kind of like a, a stairway that goes up all the way up to the Royal Mile, mm-hmm. um, next next to it, um, and we used to just run up and down those stairs, and it was great because before we went up there, we had like in the school hall, we had the venue taped out on the on the school floor. So we knew what the size of the venue was. We had all of like the 
props and the set and the costume and everything. We just re rehearsed it every day really? and took it up. And then we fly it. I think the show was on about midday. So, so we'd go up in these mini buses uh, and you know, a bunch of the teachers gave up their holiday. A load of the students did. Um, and we went up and we fly it every day. We had to get our own audience in and, you know, because it was Shakespeare, it was quite an easy sell. Uh, so we'd always have like good audiences. Um, and then at about two o'clock when we'd finished with the play, it was our time. So we'd go back to the accommodation. We all get changed. And then we, because we were naughty kids, we'd go out and get hammered and go and see uh, stand up comedy up in Edinburgh. So when I was 16, the Tron, I remember I saw Jason John Whitehead at the Tron, saw Al Murray at the Pleasance. He got me out of the audience and got me up on stage. Uh, and, you know, like, um, you know, I, I know that when I get people out of the audience, people say, oh, don't pick on me. And I always think it's not picking on, on people. I feel like you're actually asking them to participate. And I remember when I was young, full of confidence, uh, Al Murray, you know, got me out of the audience on stage and it made my day. Do you know what? Yeah. Like people uh, would be cheering me and by, do you know what I mean? It, yeah, I would be the same. I would I enjoy that. Like, yeah. I would enjoy that. I loved it. Now, now I don't want, now I don't want that. I completely understand. But mm. at the time I, you know, I, I, I loved it. And I'm pretty sure that had like a huge impact on me. And then when I did like my first, um, uh, my first full hour in 2010, I did it at the Tron because that's where I first went to see stand-up comedy at the Tron. So, um, just, so sorry, just was, going back yeah. then, um, do you think going to see that first stand-up in Edinburgh, is that kind of then that, was that then the decision that you wanted to be a comedian yeah. yourself? No, it was a decision that... Um, uh, and I and I didn't know I wanted to be a comedian until I did my first gig. Right. Um, I knew I, I I was a huge Jack D fan, and I'd get like Jack D videos for every birthday, and um, and I liked Lee Evans as well, but not as much as Jack D. Mm -hmm. uh, my sister was into Eddie Izzard. As a family, we grew up on like French and Saunders, and uh, you know, not the Nine O'clock News and Blackadder and all that stuff. Um, but but it was really like Mary, the Mary Whitehouse experience when I was probably about 10 or 11 and Fist of Fun when I was a little bit older. Um, and then we used to watch Roseanne on a Friday night. I got into Red Dwarf. It was just like early 90s when you there's a there's a moment where you've adopted your parents and my, I've got an older sister. So you adopt their tastes mm -hmm. up until a certain point, And then you discover what you like. And like when I was 10 or 11 and I could, you know, went to the video shop every week and I'd rent out Steve Martin films and, uh, you know, space balls and, you know, um, it, it would always be comedies because I, I found horror films terrifying. Yeah. So I would always kind of like go for comedies and stuff. But I, I, but comedy was always something that other people did. You look at it and you go, that is an impossible thing to do. I don't know how you get your head around comedy. I don't know how you'd even begin. I never even thought of it as um, 
not even like as an option because if you think of it like an option it's almost like you go how about be a comedian no no not for me it never even occurred <laughs> to me that it was like a thing that you could do like it was furthest from my mind i was interested in films filmmaking theater uh i i saw kind of like i sort of guess i saw theater as a way to sort of like get used to writing dialogue mm -hmm. so that i could start writing films um but comedy was kind of like like magic you know uh, and I, I i don't know how they do it so i just enjoyed it um but I would say when I did that first Edinburgh in 1997, that was a moment where um, it was weird because there was only a small handful of us kids that went up there. Um, mm. And when we came back uh, to the sixth form the next year, we were different. You know, we had this experience, which I guess is the equivalent of. Um, I know that the music department used to go off and they used to go to kind of like um, places in Europe to kind of like uh, play in an orchestra. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, the foot, you know, the PE, the PE team, the, the football team used to tour around other schools and go places. The art department used to go to kind of places. But for drama, it was kind of like it was just us that went. And then when we came back, it was like, um, cool, where I was just like, I don't know what it is and I don't know how to do it, but I know that I want to go up to Edinburgh every year for the rest of my life. Yeah. I don't need to be, I don't need to be famous. I don't need to be a millionaire. Uh, but if I can go up to Edinburgh every year, then I'll be, um, I think this is what I want to do with my life. And I did 97. We did another play in 98. And I did my final play in uh, 99. Mm -hmm. And then I went to university in 99. And then I didn't do university. I didn't do Edinburgh in 2000. And I missed it. And yeah. then the opportunity, the opportunity came along in 2001. Um, because I think that I was in contact with my old school. And I think that they were taking up Midsummer Night's Dream and they had a deal with the venue where if they did Midsummer Night's Dream at midday, they got a reduced price for a midnight slot. Right. And they said, do, do I want to fill the midnights? Oh, yeah, because I'd done my A-levels by that point. Um, so, um, so I just, I suddenly, I, so I, I was very confident in the sixth form. And I wrote, um, uh, we all had to do an individual skill in, um, in drama. So my A-levels were uh, English, art and drama. And, um, uh, and I did technology in GCSE and I did really well in tech and I like woodwork and I like, you know, so, so it's not all just uh, flouncy stuff. I can kind of like, I can make a, I can make a tie rack and uh, I got like a hundred, I got like a, a, an A star for the tie rack that I made. And my dad still uses it. So it's kind of like, great. Um, but uh, when I went over to doing all the drama stuff, I was just incredibly confident. And when we did A-levels, we had an individual skill. So it could be like set design or um, script writing or acting anything to do with lighting you know direction anything to do with acting i think we had to pick three disciplines and i think mine were 
directing, set design, maybe acting, but I think that would be a bit arrogant. Maybe it would be writing. And um, and I wrote a 10 minute monologue that I that I did that had like a couple of people that were acting out scenes behind me. Um, and, um, you know, and, uh, and I was like the first, you know, I, I did really well. I got, you know, <laughs> I tell, I'm, it's difficult to sort of like, um, <laughs> talk about, talk about successes and achievements without feeling like an absolute twat. But, um, <laughs> but yeah. I was, I, I, I did really, I got, I was the first student in my school to get a hundred percent for, um, uh, for drama. Mm-hmm. But then the next year they were giving them out and I was like, ah, oh, right. <laughs> but I was the first one. And then, um, and then, so when, so I had like this 10 minute play and my drama teacher, not the same one, a different one said, why don't you take that up to Edinburgh? And I was like, how do you take a 10 minute monologue up to Edinburgh? So in 2001, when they said, do you want to take up a play? I said, uh, yeah, I've got this 10 minutes. And mm-hmm. if I write another five, 10 minutes of different things, I'll put them together and it'll be a collection because the monologue was perfect. So I didn't want to touch that. So I'll just write easy as easy as fuck, mate. I'll just write another 500 <laughs> percent uh 10 minute like uh they weren't sketches they were like mini plays but like um or like one scene plays so i just wrote uh my friend that i was at um school with uh we went to the same university and we sort of like got our heads together and we wrote some some um plays some some scenes and some sketches they weren't sketches but they were kind of and we came up with like six dark comedy um, mini plays that we strapped together and called it mm-hmm. air freshener because relationships stink and it was all about relationships. We were 20. So we were kind of like, this is 20 years ago, which is kind of like mind boggling to me. But 20 years ago, I, I took up my first, I directed it. Um, I was in it. We, we wrote it. There was four of us in it and we would, um, we went up to Edinburgh. It was on at midnight. So we, about 11 o'clock, we would fly for an hour and then we'd do our show. Uh, on the first day, we had um, the Scotsman came in. Uh, and I think we only did a week. And um, we knew that the Scotsman liked it, but they hadn't printed the review. So we went a whole week and we were flying all day and we didn't get any audiences in and um the review didn't come out and then um i think we'd sleep all day uh we'd fly uh, for like six hours we'd do the show then we'd go out and we'd drink all night and then we'd sleep in the day and then we'd fly yeah, and do again, it was like a cycle and then and then it was and it was quite it was quite a good routine and we used to get really nervous so it was kind of like we'd sort of distract ourselves and the best moment was coming off stage because it was the longest before you had to get back on stage and um and i know the reason i i started writing was because i was so bad at auditions and i was so bad at learning lines that i was like if i write for myself then i can cast myself and i can you know i'll, I'll be yeah. a writer performer um 
Um, uh, and so, you know, we'd get nervous all day, we'd do it. And then on the last day, the review came out and we got four stars in the Scotsman. And we had, I don't think we sold out, but we had a very full audience. Right. And, um, and the show went incredible. And um, we, it was like a fairy tale. It was sort of like we went up, we know, and the, I, I'm sort of like painting this, St Albans was kind of like, um, yeah, it was kind of like posh and, middle class but the school wasn't incredibly posh and it kind of yeah it was like a real big kind of like gamble for that teacher to take us all up there yeah and um uh and uh, and then when i had the opportunity to do it i sort of like was like yeah i can do this so we did and i didn't know that i couldn't that i couldn't do it mm-hmm. so so I think ignorance is kind of, and being naive is yeah. kind of a blessing, a blessing at that age. Yeah, do you, so just I did this throwing thing. yourself into something and kind of, and watching how it all works out, again, that that would again have such an impact on your confidence again. Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was really kind of, um, it was just sort of like, it was mad because I'd done other you know I'd done plays um this was something that I'd written and this was something that I was in and I was getting kind of like acknowledgement for not a load of acknowledgement but enough to keep me going and and it kind of like was like oh I can do this um and yeah it was just sort of like this we all four of us kind of like fell asleep on the plane home there's uh three three guys and a girl and we just sort of like it was just like this absolutely magical experience where on the way back we'd sort of like worked our and we'd worked really hard on it and no one had uh, do you know what i mean it was sort of like we'd we'd done it you know we could have we'd done a year at uni or two years at uni by that point no a year at uni and we could have, um, no, it's 2001. So we'd done two years at uni. So we could have kind of like had a holiday yeah. and we didn't. And we did this thing. And um, and then it was just like, okay, that's what you do every year. You just take a shot to Edinburgh. So then we did another one the year after, which was a follow-up called Christmas Tree. And the th- thinking behind that was we did the whole month that year. And we did three weeks of the new show, Christmas Tree, and then one week of Air Freshener because it had gone so well the year before. And it was a very different experience. And um, and that was when I had graduated. So I'd finished university in 2002. Um, and I'd done well at university. I'd kind of like, I hadn't read any books at uni. And, I'd, and I, to this day, if you're young and listening and going to university you don't get that opportunity really again to have yeah. uh, you know f- you know you get paid to read and it's kind of like just you know i didn't read any books when i was in, and i and i fluked it and um mm. uh i i did i did well and um and i felt kind of like well i haven't really earned it and then when I left university, I had this 
degree i did uh, drama and television at uni but it was really uh, we made documentaries and we did workshops with kids um and lots of things i still didn't hadn't thought about stand-up there was one module where we did commedia dell'arte where um which is what uh, uh one man two governors um is based on mm-hmm. it's sort of like an italian form of comedy where like all of like the staples the staple characters and plots of comedy come from and i and i did really well on that course and you had to perform in that and i made people laugh and i knew that that was really addictive but i still hadn't done any stand-up and um i left university and then i had like a complete confidence crash because i had a great like i had a good i got a first but it was sort of like a first from you from winchester so it wasn't kind of like um, a very well um, uh, respected right. university at the time. I don't know what it is now, but at the time, I, I, I so, and also it was in this thing which was drama, television, and theatre, which was kind of like a nothingy course. It wasn't drama. It wasn't an acting course. It wasn't a practical course. Yes, it was a lot just, of like writing and yeah, everything lumped yeah. together. Yeah, it was, and I, I remember on, on the first day of the, I remember on the first day of the course, we went in and there was like 200 students and on the second, and they told us what the course was going to be. And on the second day of the course, there was like 30 students and everyone had left. And I felt so bad for the lecturers that I thought, oh, well, I'll stick with it then. Because yeah. <laughs> I'll, even though I'm paying for it, it was just sort of like, I felt I felt like I, I owed the, I owed these lectures that I'd just met the day before to stick with the course. And so I did. I stuck with it for three years. Um, but it was kind of like it, it, it didn't open any doors for me. And then I and then I had a massive confidence uh, crash. And I never I've, and I think I was at my most confident then when I was 19, 20, 21. Yeah. And then everything after that has kind of like been a bit of a downhill downward spiral so but that takes me to uh sorry that takes you to when well that takes me to the end of uni and i've i've written a couple of shows right so when um did you start kind of bringing music into your act so that would have been in christmas tree the second show i was i worked in a pub um and you know, to this day, bar work is pretty much my favourite job that I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, it was, it was, it was good. I, I mean, I was, I'd lost a lot of, I'd lost a lot of confidence, but I did bar work to get me through university. And also I would take all of my savings from bar work and I'd put that into Edinburgh and, um, uh, and I would write songs. So I was in a band and I'd write songs at uni and I wrote loads of songs at uni. I was in a band at school, not at uni, but I would write songs at uni. Mm-hmm. Um, my housemate uh, was into uh, music as well and would sort of like learn how to play guitar. He learned a lot more than me, but um, I learned about five chords and then I never really learned any more. And all of my songs are based around about four or five chords. About like and, me. Um, 
I mean, it's sort of like it worked. And then at no point did I kind of like, I just ended up just being busy. Yeah. And it was sort of like, and I, you know, it's the dream is to, you know, like um, Bill and Ted's bogus journey. And then mm-hmm. they can't play. And then at the end, they go somewhere else and they learn how to play guitar. And then because of time travel, it's instantaneous. They can look, they can play guitar. It's yeah. like that, or the trick. Any Keanu Reeves film, basically. I just, it would be amazing to just be able to learn how to play guitar without putting the time and effort in. But I was, I, I, I could play guitar enough to write stuff on and I'd write songs that you, mm-hmm. and I had one funny song, which was called Touch Myself Ain't Half As Good As You. Right. And when I worked in the pub, they would get me to play it after hours. So, uh-huh. you know, at closing time, you know, there'd be a lock-in or something and I would play uh, this song and they all really loved the song. Um, and and again, I wasn't sort of like showboating. There was like big personalities in the pub and I would they'd sort of like say, Nick, play the song. And I'd kind of like be dragged out from behind the bar and I'd play the song and they'd, oh, yeah, the, and they'd all like the song and I'd be like, yeah. And, but it wasn't kind of like... Yeah, you know, there's a difference between like arrogance and confidence. I have, I was confident I can make eye contact with people, and I was really, you know, um, convinced that I could do something, and I and I could do it. You know, it wasn't like um, I thought I could do something, and I was actually shit at it. And I, you know, I was doing a thing, and I was getting good reviews, and audiences liked it, and I, I was doing, and I was like proud and confident with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and and when we went to the Christmas tree, I wrote like this musical segment around it, where we took that song and we like acted it out, and uh, and then that was the point where it was just like, right, I, uh, I think later on I read the Steve Martin book Born Standing Up, mm-hmm. and one of the things that rang true with that was Steve Martin said that. Um, you know, just take everything that you can do and put it in one act. Right. And, you know, before I'd read that book, I was kind of like, I was writing poetry as well. So when I had to scrape, when I had to do a show, it would be kind of like, I'll do like a monologue and I'll do something funny and I'll do a song and maybe I'll do a poem. Sort of like scrape together. Even artwork, I'd build sort of like set and props and... Mm -hmm. um, and we'd make stuff in my garden and it was all like creative, did everything, designed the posters, which was shit, but I designed them, do you know what I mean? And so it's just kind of like, so you do a bit of everything and you take everything that you do and um, and you'd only show people the stuff you could do. You wouldn't show people the stuff that you couldn't do, that you weren't very good at. Um, and so people would leave thinking, wow, this guy can do everything. And you go, I can do five things, but you saw them all. But you now think because I did five things, I can do a thousand things. Um, and that was and when later on, when Steve Martin says, just do everything that you're good at. And one thing I was like, yes, I've been doing that. And that's right. Um, and then I didn't do anything in 2002. I was doing uh, theatre and education, which was uh, I wrote a a, fr- a, a, a school friend had gone on to work for um, uh, a county council somewhere. Right. They needed a play to go around schools about uh, about uh, about 
part of it, that driving to go around and t- tell 16-year-old boys not to drive their car fast. Right. And they said, Nick, we write it. And I, so, I, so I got a job, you know, I got a job writing this theatre and education play. So I wrote it and uh, then I directed it and then I organised the tour and I was, I don't think I was in it at first. I think I hired other people, but then, you know, I was trying to make as much money as possible. So I put myself in it and I acted in it so I could pay myself as an actor as well. And um, and I did it for about two, two or three years where we were going around schools and it was literally... Um, that, you know, you'd go into like a posh boys' school, and there'd be like I don't know a thousand, a thousand sixteen-year-old boys, and I was maybe twenty-two or twenty-three. So the age difference wasn't that huge. No. But the but you're on the wrong you're but you're on wrong side of authority. You know, mm-hmm. you're not one of them. You're a teacher. I'm the same age as the teachers that we had once they'd finished university and they went in. And so I, I, I was going into schools with like this group of actors. We were teaching 16 year old boys not to drive their car fast and it was good money, but it was absolutely soul destroying and I hated it. Um, And um, uh, I just, I was doing it, but it made me very unhappy and the kids hated us. And, um, and I was just like, fucking hell, I don't want to do it. I did. uh, And I took, but I took the money from, that and I funneled it into um, taking the show up in 2004 which was called Love Life mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I did Edinburgh then um, and uh, that went fine that was a two-hander which was like a um, it was like a funny PowerPoint show where we're doing a presentation about uh friendship and love and life but i've had a nervous breakdown and my friend um hates me and it was about two childhood friends that were you know the world's leading uh child self-help gurus Mm -hmm. uh but now they've grown up and it's about how fucked up they are now that they're grown up so we uh, so we did that in 2004 and um that was absolutely fine um and i sort of like was running my own theater company um and then i moved down to brighton um to uh, because one of my friends from university who did the same courses as me was down there he'd been in japan for a few years and he'd got back mm-hmm. and we decided to go into business together and i'd already been doing theater and education so we were like i'll take this theater and education business and we'll make loads of money by doing theater and education and i'll take all of the profits and i'll put them into um doing shows in edinburgh so in in for the year i can make money doing theater and education and i'll just funnel it all back into doing kind of like stuff up in edinburgh but i hated doing it and then uh, i lost the contract and um the guy i was working with kind of didn't bring as much to the table as i was hoping right Um, which is polite um and then everything went tits up and i ended up uh, I lived in Brighton for a year, which I hated. And then I ended up back at home with my mum and dad. Yeah, back at so I was 25 or 26 by that point. And, and I was back back there and I was just like, I don't know what I want to do. I know I don't want to do theatre and education. I literally don't know what to do. I was, 
was 25 because it was 2006 and um hadn't done edinburgh in 2005 and then in i'd when i was in the upper sixth form i'd started writing a play and it was dragging on and on. It was going on forever long, nine years. And so by the time it got to 2000, yeah, so 97, I started writing a play. And by the time it got to 2006, I still hadn't done it. So I booked it into Edinburgh and I was, I'm doing this play in Edinburgh. I've got to write it. I've got to do it. I'll do it in Edinburgh. And I was just sort of like, I was back at home. I'd sort of like lost all my confidence. Um, I couldn't make eye contact with anyone. I had very bad skin. Uh, I'm very stressed. My business had gone tits up. Yeah. I, um, I, I was like this golden child at, in the sixth form and at university where I was like an overachiever, you know? Um, and then I, and I was coming to terms with the fact that I couldn't really make it in the real world and that, um, that I didn't know what to do. My dad was pressuring me into doing an IT course and I was just like, I absolutely do not want to do that. Mm -hmm. um uh and uh, you know you hear stories from like actors people that have made it ray winstone you know and he'll say something like yeah if you have a b uh, you know plan b then that's what you'll end up doing yeah and so i didn't i didn't have a plan b it was just like okay i don't know what but i didn't know what to do so i wrote a list i think in about at the beginning of the year, I wrote a list on a piece of paper and it was, and it was sort of like a no holes barred. What do you want to do for a job? So I, you know, be an astronaut. <laughs> so I wrote that down. Be a cowboy. I wrote that down. You know, write a book, wrote that down. Be in a band, wrote that down. So I, you know, and I just wrote down everything that I wanted to do right with my life mm -hmm. then I'd go right well I'm not gonna be a cowboy I don't like horses that much across that out I'm not going to be an astronaut at 25 I'm too old uh, to go back and learn maths and science and all that stuff so I'll never be an astronaut fine and then it got to stuff like write a book I'll be like that's great but I'm depressed right now and I need to get something I need to do something today to get me out of what I'm doing and I can write a book, but that'll take time. Mm -hmm. um, so, but that's a, put a circle around that. Cause I, it just needs me being a band. I've got to orchestrate other people, you know, I've got to convince other people to play my music or to do whatever. Um, and I've just done a load of theater and I don't want to organize other people anymore. So that's off. Right. I just, yeah. You know, and then one of the things was be a stand-up comedian. And I was just like, huh, I never thought about that. So I did. Uh, so I literally was, I think I was working in a pub, which I couldn't make eye contact with people, you know. And uh, I would sort of like look down and I'd take people's orders. But I was very sort of like, like, it was like Famid. within the four years. Okay, what did you say? Famid. You're kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. broken. Yeah, I yeah, I was I was sort of like I was ashamed, and I felt like my best years were behind me, and um, I was like, oh, I've I've fucked it, I've absolutely fucked my life. Everyone that I knew that hadn't gone into like the arts were getting jobs, 
people were like managers that I went to school with you know I remember I, I worked in a pub in St Albans and people that I went to school with would come into the pub and they'd see me in the pub and they they'd feel bad for me and I'd be mm. like I oh, well hey I'm happy working in the pub and I don't need your pity but also I felt like people were looking at me like going what happened do you know what I mean yeah. like um you were meant to leave that I'm like I'm I'm what you call it um projecting but you know people couldn't make eye contact I couldn't make eye contact with them people couldn't make eye contact with me it was a whole thing where no one I mean maybe they weren't even looking at me um so so yeah I felt really shit about this thing and so I scraped together all the money that I'd made from the pub and I enlisted in a 200 quid course one day course to do stand-up and I was like there were ones that cost like a thousand quid I think Amused Moose was like multiple weeks and you could do that um but I didn't have that much money and mm. I didn't have that much time and I didn't know if I wanted to even do stand-up and um and I just thought 200 quid it's one day and I think I'll know at the end of that day whether I want to do it or not so I did it I did the course they um I, I did really well. They basically taught you how to hold a microphone. And then that was all morning. And then in the afternoon at lunch, you had to think of a story that you wouldn't tell your mum. And then in the afternoon, we all took it in turns telling it. And then we'd critique each other and tell people what we thought. And then at the end, they gave me the number for uh, downstairs at the King's Head in Crouch End. Um, and the, the guy that ran the course, uh, Brian Luff, um, he said that um, you could go on stage tonight and do that. And I was like, oh. So I, uh, this is in like March 2000 and, um, 2006. I was 25. My birthday's in October. So I wanted, I, in my head, it was just like Steven Spielberg directed Jaws when he was 25. I wanted to do something that I was proud of by the time before I was 26 so um so I enlisted I did the course I booked a gig phoned up um phoned up downstairs at the King's Head which was very scary booked a gig for September um which was just before my 26th birthday mm-hmm. um and then that was like months away so in between them and then and there I did um I did this play that I'd been putting off for years uh called Stroke and um i did that in edinburgh i'd taken nine years to write it it got a one-star review in the scotsman uh which was a printing error and apparently it should have been a two-star review uh but by that point it was too late and uh and the day after the it was one star in the paper and it was two stars online and the day after the one star review came out we were struggling, you know, we were really struggling. We were trying to get people to come and see the show. It was an empty theatre. It was at the Bedlam mm-hmm. Theatre. Um, Rob, who I was doing Edinburgh, the Edinburgh shows with, I've done everything with him. Like from, I think we did the last school play. Right. My right, first right. two shows. We'd done everything together. Mm-hmm. And Rob was at university in Edinburgh, which meant that... Um, he had accommodation during the holidays, which meant we didn't have to pay for accommodation, right? Mm-hmm. So we were saving money and we did it at the student theatre and um, and we were flyering every day and no one was coming to see the show. We got a one-star review, we sold out. And um, 
people and there was music involved in that show and people would come out and I remember we came out on stage and people were laughing at us like at us like this mm. show shit got one star and then by the end of it we got a standing ovation and it was kind of like good right I knew it wasn't totally shit but at the same time I've spent nine years writing yeah. this play for a one star review and that was August. And then September came along and I was right. I had this gig at the downstairs King's Head and I was writing material on the bus. And when I got on stage and I started doing my set, uh, which was seven minutes, I think, mm-hmm. um, I was making up stuff on the spot and saying it. And some of it would get a laugh and some of it wouldn't get a laugh. But I was like, I've just spent nine years writing a play to find out that it was shit. Yeah. I can say something right. I can say something right now. You get immediate, immediate feedback. feedback. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, oh, great. Plus, I didn't have to organize an audience. There was an audience that was there, you know, which mm-hmm. was, again, this is, this is great. And then, it, and then it's just like, if, if you can stand up in front of a thousand posh boys at a boys school and tell them to stop speeding their cars and for them to sort of like tell you under their breath that you're, you're a loser and that you're shit, mm-hmm. you know. If you can do that, then you can do a room underneath a pub in front of 30 people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was like, it was like, oh, so it's like all of my experience. Yeah, all of my experience that had led up to that was just sort of like, oh, I've been really trying and failing with all this Mm -hmm. other stuff. Um, And I was lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And when I did that first gig, it was like, at the end of the gig, some uh, the people that had run the course were there, and they were like, "What's this? Like your, your is this like your third or your fourth gig?" And I was like, "No, it's my first. Bloody hell! They think it's my third gig, and it's not. It's my first. And like now, you realise that's like a, a tear in a bucket. But like, but at the time, it's like wow. And then someone else who ran another club would come over, came over to me, and they said, "Do you want to do a gig in like?" Um, in like one month's time and I'm like yeah and I'd never been offered another another gig through theatre and with mm-hmm. stand up I'd done one gig and I'd instantly doubled the amount of gigs I'd got yeah and so I was just like fuck I'll do this then and then and then that was that I just did stand up that's brilliant it's that's absolutely brilliant it's funny how throughout your career the Kind of everything's to do with confidence, really, isn't it? So you had a couple of good experiences that kind of boosted you up, and then obviously you had a couple of bad experiences that that put you the other way. But it's so quickly how it changes again. I think, yeah, it's that, and it's also purpose. If you know what you want to do and you're doing it, then it gives you drive and it gives you direction. But if you, like, like, I mean, at the age of 23, 24, to have my own theatre company that I had built up myself and to be touring it across uh, the southeast um, and to be hiring actors and directing actors and like filling in forms and planning, you know, but you know, planning routes that we were going to, this is before like smartphones. So you'd have to have a fucking Atlas and <laughs> plan the routes that you were going to the school and stuff. And I was doing all of that stuff. And, um, and, and 
you know, and it's what I'd studied at university to kind of do. And it's kind of like, you know, well, surely you were incredibly proud and, you know, confident and, that, you know, you would, you would achieve in so much at such a young age. And I was just ashamed and I just didn't want to be doing it. And I was really disappointed in myself. Um, and I think that's because it wasn't what I wanted to do deep down in my heart. I sort of like, um, I'd sort of convinced myself without trying that I couldn't make it. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I took, I went for the plan B, which was something related to what I wanted to do, which was writing and acting and performing, but it wasn't quite what I wanted to do because it was, it was education. It was theatre and education. It was kind of like, I felt, I felt, and there's nothing wrong with that either. It's just not what I wanted to do. And it didn't feel right when I was doing it. And I guess I probably wasn't very good at it either because my heart wasn't in it. And when I started doing stand-up, it was just like, oh, this is it. This is it. Oh. And so, and then through stand-up, I started doing stand-up. And then I still worked in the pub until I got so many gigs in the evening that I couldn't work evenings anymore. So I had to get a day job instead. But through through doing stand-up, I began to start making eye contact with people. And I could talk to strangers. You know, there'd be this thing I'd be... I'd be living at my parents' house and they'd have people over and they'd sort of like, come down and say hello, Nick. And I'd be like, I don't want to, I don't want to talk to people about my life and what I'm up to. People say, what are you up to? And I had no news. I don't, don't, I'm, I'm not doing anything. You know, you're trying to convince yeah. your parents, friends that you're not an absolute fuck up and you are. And then all of a sudden, uh, doing stand up gave me this confidence to meet strangers, talk to strangers in the pub, like, um, while I was working in the pub or if I was going out in the evening, I could talk to anyone and I could make eye contact with people. And I, you know, and then I noticed this change in me where it's like, Oh, I, I feel, you know, not, um, not, uh, obnoxiously confident, but I feel like I can stand up straight and I yeah. can kind of, um, I can sort of like, um, go toe to toe with anyone it's like what do you do what do i do you know and um i I, and i knew what i wanted to do then and i had something to aim for um yeah yeah that's blown i did i did i did go on it's it's definitely a thing because like on a a lower level obviously i'm not a stand-up comedian but i'm i'm genuinely no no such a confident person but I use humour to kind of to build my confidence up and to kind of get myself through situations, and I, I think it, it's definitely laughter is like they say medicine in it, and I think it does it does help people's confidence. It's certainly helped me throughout my career. Uh, yeah, it's it's um, it builds confidence in yourself, and if you're funny and you make people laugh then mm. it's kind of like it, it makes you feel good because you can do something and you're you're good at doing something but uh, but on top of that it is like you're providing a service for people as well yeah. and um and that gives you like a sense of pride and achievement because you, you know people are coming to see you or you're on and the dream really is that people leave in a better place than they entered you know mm-hmm. so 
if you can if you can do that if you if your job is to basically even if it's for a brief moment if you can go in and you can make people feel better about whatever it is they're feeling yeah. then um or even if it's like forgetting how shit their day was or that they've got a job that they hate or whatever if you can kind of like go in and like you know and and provide a service and sort of like i think that that's a really good that that's that's a positive thing you're kind of giving something back a bit um and i think you know it's taken me a while to get there but definitely kind of what i get the most satisfaction out of now is kind of um uh you know giving back to people um and you know if there's ever sort of like young comedians that need advice i'm always kind of like there to help people out and mm-hmm. um and that, that's that's like a part of a part of what i enjoy about the job it's not i mean I get very nervous getting up on stage and I have like highs and lows with mental health, mm-hmm. but, um, but in terms of, um, in terms of like the job, I like, I like being on stage. I don't like getting on stage. Yeah. I don't like the build up towards getting on stage. I don't like the day waiting for the gig in the evening. The exact same way that as podcast, you like, um, the hour leading up to interviewing somebody is like, yeah. I'm like, I want, it's the last thing I want to do. Uh, yeah. And this is the first, other than yesterday, was the first one that I did. So because I've been off this week, I was like, right, I'm just putting hundreds of podcasts just so that I get into it. But like last night, then my first one, I was so scared to come on and talk. And once yeah. you're on, it's fine. It's just an actual yeah. But I also think it's very difficult meeting people on Zoom. Mm. And because I, so I do a radio show and we have, um, we interview, I do a radio show on fan club uh, on uh, Food Bar Radio mm-hmm. uh, with my friend Nathaniel. And the first hour is a two hour show. And the first hour is just me and Nathaniel chatting. Second hour, we have a guest on. And when they're in the studio, when they were in the studio before pand- the pandemic, uh, I was always all right meeting people, but on Zoom, I get very nervous. Mm. I think that it's easy to sort of like misunderstand each other on Zoom. And um, I find it quite, I find it quite stressful. And so you end up being like in your own house or your flat, being mm. all stressed about the fact that you got to, you got to meet someone. And it's like, it's yeah, it's not the best circumstances, but no. um, I, I totally get that. Um I get nervous before all my um, all my interviews. Really, um, it's just a very. Strange. I get nervous about doing most things. I think sometimes it's like the with me. I think it's the nerves that make me me, yeah, me unique. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's the style of comedy that I do, the way I am on stage. Um, uh, it, what I choose to write about it's it's all comes from the point of view that I'm like I have to be dragged onto the stage to do it yeah and then when I'm there I'm absolutely I'm absolutely fine and I revel in it and I enjoy it um but uh, but getting me there is the hard part really. yeah right so just kind of obviously we've touched on 
I go to the your stuff at the fringe, and I mean you played there basically every year, but just jumping forward a wee bit to kind of taking your stuff onto the telly because I think like the first time I seen you would have been on eight out of ten cats, um, mm. so how how was that sort of thing like? Doing your stuff in front of other comedians, how did you kind of deal with that? Um, well, what I loved, I think what I loved most about when I started doing comedy was when I, when I moved to London, when I moved to St Albans from London, I was all alone and I, and I was lost and I didn't know what I wanted to do until I started doing drama uh, in year 10, year 11 at, se- at secondary school. And it was like this decade process from whatever, from like 1989 to 1999, where I didn't have any friends and then I made friends and then I started doing something creative and then I made all of these friends and then that mm-hmm. took me all the way through university. And then it's almost mm-hmm. like the process started again where when I finished university in 2002, I went right back down to rock bottom again and I didn't have any friends. Um, I was living back at home. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then by the time it got to like 2006, it was like I started doing uh, stand-up. And then in doing stand-up, you're hanging around with other people. And they're all people that have the same interests as you, you all want to do stand up and you're all interested in stand up mm-hmm. and you make friends and you start running gigs and everyone's doing your gigs and you're doing everyone else's gigs. And it was like, it was like, well, what I loved about it was it was the first time since university that I felt like I was learning something. Um, and I was making friends and it was, it mirrored the exact same process of going through school. Mm-hmm. And so by the time uh, so I did keep hold of the gold in 2010, which was basically I, I had given up by that point. I'd done Edinburgh so many years. I think I'd done. I did um, uh, 2008. I did about four shows. I did. I think you stink. Uh, Hellman Taylor, which was a double act I was in. I compared for Hannah George and Katie Wilkins of Drunk Women Solving Crime fame. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did something else. And um so yeah, two thousand and seven, I did stand up. Two thousand eight, I did a bunch of shows. Two thousand nine, I did my own show at the Free Fringe when two comedians dropped out and I had to fill an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of like I'd gone. I've done about as much with Edinburgh as I want. I'll do one more year in Edinburgh, two thousand and ten, because I can do the Tron. And then I did the Tron with Rob and. Um, he played guitar and um, yeah, and it changed my life. It was like, uh, I was literally, I'll have one more stab at it for fun. And then that's it. I'll, 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 I'll work out what else to do after that. Or I'll take a break from Edinburgh at least. I won't take a break from stand up, but I'll take a break from Edinburgh because I've done it for 10 years now mm-hmm. and um, over 10 years. And uh, yeah, and then that was the show that Daniel Kitson came to see, that Jimmy Carr came to see, that Cunt and the gang came to see. I got loads of um, great reviews. You know, I'd had friends from school and teachers and stuff that had come to see me up in Edinburgh that said, you know, stop doing this. It's 
you get you're going nowhere mm. um and you know then you realize oh i'm not going to be <laughs> I, I love doing this i don't know what your what standard you're judging it on but i don't need to be famous i don't need to make money don't need anything i will work in a pub and work in an office all year round just to do edinburgh and this isn't about you giving me permission to do it it's about me wanting to do it i love this this is what i love mm. this is what gets me out of bed every day this is you know coming up with ideas writing them and then doing them um so you do have people that come up to you and tell you you know you're wasting your time and then you just cut them out of your life i suppose yeah <laughs> um and you just need to stay focused on what you want um or you realise that they're not your friends, you know, because they're judging you based on the fact that they're embarrassed for you. Yeah. And you're like, well, I don't need, I don't need you to be embarrassed for me. Um, but so 2010, so so this year right, really took off, and like the, all of the industry. I had a good year in 2009, but 2010 was the year that everything really took off. All the industry came to see me. I just got an agent, um, uh, and. Um, they asked me to do Russell Howard's Good News. Um, or I think off the back of that Edinburgh, they kind of put me in the mix to do Russell Howard's Good News. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, I mean, you're asking like, what's it like performing in front of other comedians and stuff like that? But it's sort of like, you're so used to it by that point. And actual fact, I prefer, I preferred performing in front of comedians to actual audience members because no. i'm such like a divisive i was such a divisive act that you know i'd split the rooms and uh, you know some people would hate me some people would love me i could have a good gig and a bad gig in the same gig um mm -hmm. and um i always loved like the comedian's reactions well that's is that's is my point because um that's one of the things i enjoy like about eight out of ten cats is watching the other comedians laugh at the the comedian that, that's that's telling the, the jokes at that point, and it's I think it's really refreshing to see obviously the kind of the admiration that you all hold each other in. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, eight out of ten cats is a, is. It's a, it's a tough show, but it's, I think um, it's also, in terms of those panels, I think, things, I think things have changed quite a lot very recently. Mm -hmm. um, but for a long time, panel shows have been a, a bit of like a bun fight where it's whoever can shout the loudest and whoever can kind of talk, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. it, you've got to be you've got to be really pushy to do those sorts of shows and eight out of 10 cats had the reputation for being one of the nicer shows. And, um, it's also a really good show for new, newer acts. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, one of the reasons Jimmy Carr came to see me in 2010 was, uh, because he was told he went up to Edinburgh and he was, he, you know, he heard that my show was one of the must see shows that year. And he came to sit, you know, um, I think Jimmy Carr is, um, is great when it comes to that sort of thing. He's really good at finding new talent. He's really good at kind of like going to, not just like I've heard that this act is good, 
and not doing the, the homework or the groundwork. Yeah. He actually, he'll go up to Edinburgh, he'll grow a beard, he'll wear a baseball cap and he'll go around, you know, incognito and he'll uh, watch all of these acts. And then when it comes down to eight out of 10 cats, he's got a, he's got a say in it. Do you know what right. I mean? I don't know how much he does now, but like, but, uh, so I did Russell Howard's Good News, which I was the, I was the wild card. Um, I think, like, let's say they had 10 shows. Mm-hmm. I was the 11th act. And, uh, you know, if one of the other acts didn't work out, then they'd use me. Right. Yeah? Uh, but I was not a guaranteed because everyone thought I was going to, you know, punch someone on TV. And uh, <laughs> people didn't know that it was an act. People thought I was crazy. And um, people thought I'd just swear uncontrollably and I would just do, you know, it's like, I've written this. This is like a thing, yeah. you know. So uh, one of the other acts didn't work out and they ended up using me on Russell Hatt and then it changed my career. It changed me from being an opening act or a middle spot to being a headliner. And then um, eight out of 10 cats, you have to audition for eight out of 10 cats. And I went in and auditioned for eight out of 10 cats. And um, I remember, oh, it was, it was so many years ago, but I remember Catherine Ryan was on my panel Mm-hmm. you do it in you do it in kind of like um the production company you go to the produ- you go to the production company you sit in their um kind of like their staff room everyone comes in in their lunch break and they watch you do like a a mock-up trial of an eight out of ten cats episode right and i was shit catherine was kind of like catherine was incredible um she kind of like knew exactly what she was doing i can't remember who else was on my thing it was a very long time ago but i i remember um i i had a tough audition like i didn't i didn't do so well mm-hmm. and so they were like well he's not he can't do it because he's not uh good enough or whatever and jimmy carr was the one that said no he is good enough i've been to see him in edinburgh you've got to book him for the show and that's that Right. And they booked me for the show, and I now you know I I I it's the sort of thing that you do get better at. But I, in terms of my experience of doing panel shows, um, I, I don't do any other panel shows. Mm-hmm. I haven't done any other panel shows. I don't want to do, um, you know, a lot of the other panel shows. I'm not going to name any because I might want to do them at some point <laughs> in the future. But a lot of them have very bad reputations in terms of, you know people trampling over each other and people talking over each other and it being incredibly competitive. And I'm in a competitive industry. You've got to be a bit competitive. It's the part of the industry that I hate the most. I hate the, the competitiveness. And I guess what I've tried to do with my career is not be like anyone else. I've not, you know, I think if you're in direct competition with someone else, it's because your act is too similar, you know? Mm. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like what I've tried to do is just kind of like go, I do something that is so different from what everyone else does that I don't feel like I'm in competition. And eight out of 10 cats had a reputation for being kind of like one of the nicer ones for newer acts. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy Carr insisted that I did it and I did it. And again, you know, he's helped out loads of young, younger, new comedians like that. Um and he went to see me every year for like a for like a stretch. And you know, I still I still do eight out of ten cats now, because mm-hmm. at one point fourteen years ago, Jimmy Carr 
or, or 13 or 12 years ago, Jimmy Carr said he should do, he should be on the show. Yeah. And you did um, kind of your role on kind of like obviously the, the countdown, the mm. and the ditch in the corner. Um, that role kind of suits your comedy down to the ground, didn't it? And, it? and something like that with the ditch in the corner, then you know that you've got your bit. That, so that's, again, you've, you've not got somebody talking over you. You know that you're going to get your time. Well, and um, well, this is sort of like, and in terms of panel shows, it's it's sort of perfect. For, it's perfect, but it's also very stressful. So yeah. um, I just remember when we did like regular eight out of 10 cats, um, you get like a, a press pack and you have to read through it and then write jokes on stuff. And then, and then you'll get questions and then you'll do one of the jokes that you've written. And I would write something like three jokes. And if you, I don't know if you can get them, but if you ever see like a very old, just normal eight out of 10 cats that I'm on, mm-hmm. I don't really interact. I sit, at the end of the panel, I don't talk, and then Jimmy will say, "And how about you, Nick? Have you got anything?" And he'll bring you in. Do you know, if you don't contribute, yeah, or like if you're quiet, because I never wanted to like just bust, you know, push in. So Jimmy will kind of like he'll see you waiting, and he'll go, "Nick, have you got anything to say?" And then that is that point where I tell my joke, mm-hmm. and I would have three jokes written for each question. And if the first joke didn't work, I'd do the second joke. If the second joke didn't work, I'd do the third joke. But I would end up saying sort of like six things per episode, but they'd use them all because they, you know, I, yeah. I, I had six jokes and they used all six of my jokes. And some people would talk for ages, but they wouldn't use any of them. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So it's kind of like, I, I, it was quality over quantity. And, and I tried to sort of like... Um, uh, and I was also very nervous and shy and timid and, you know, Jimmy would bring me in. So when it came to Dictionary Corner, it's kind of like, oh, it's great. And it was, you know, um, uh, I got to work with uh, Susie Dent mm-hmm. and it's sort of like this self-contained sort of thing, which is great, uh, where they just come over to you. But the negative side of that is you're out there for the entire show and you're sat there and I, let's say I've written a song specifically for it and I'm sat there and they, you know, TV takes ages to film. So for like 45 minute, eight out of 10 cats does countdown, you're filming for two and a half hours. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the first bit when they're just chatting to each other and everyone's getting their mascots out, that goes on for an hour sometimes <laughs> and you haven't said anything and you're sat there for an hour, <laughs> just like, <laughs> waiting for everyone to introduce themselves and then jimmy carl will come over to you and he'll say and you nick what have you got for us this week and off of nothing the audience are there and they and you haven't done anything and you haven't said anything because you haven't interacted with any of the and out of that you've got to stand up and do a fucking song or a poem and and it's just like you go oh my god like it would be bad enough if you were waiting in your dressing room and then you had to come out but you're sat there in front of everyone in silence for an hour and then you have to, yeah. you know, 
do this fucking show-stopping bit of material that you've just written and it's brand new and you haven't tried it out yet. And and then you have to go back in your little place again and then come out again. So it's it, on one half, it's a really great showcase for, for you to kind of like do what you want with it. And on the other half, it's absolutely fucking terrifying because you just want to just like go, hi, hi guys, how you doing? Uh, I'm here too, don't worry, it's all right. But um, yeah, so... I, I'm re- I, I'm really proud of what um, I, I, I managed to do with uh, eight out of ten cats because yeah. it is it it looks like oh this is a lot of fun it's a really hard slot and um, and you know and I've done I I've done it I don't know eight times now seven six mm-hmm. seven eight times it's more than six I think so maybe and. I've had good, good ones and I've had hard ones, and um, uh, they always look great on TV. Yeah. But but some, sometimes it takes a while to get to it, and so yeah, it's just it's, it's really nerve wracking. So it's not an easy spot. So sometimes it's yeah. kind of and it's difficult. So definitely so, always when you're on, um, you and Joe Wilkinson. The, those those ones are the most memorable ones. Those are the ones that I always go back and look at. I think it's you get. I think it's because um, I but just felt different. like Joe is incredible. Hmm. I think these are both different styles of comedy. Different. I think these are both different styles of comedy for, from the more kind of people that yeah. sit on the panel. Yeah, and also I think um, I think I I write stuff specifically for it, and I think that you you could get away with reading like an extract from your book that you're promoting, mm-hmm. or you know, and so. But I and when I first started, I I always felt like um, Susie gets overlooked quite a lot in terms of the show, mm-hmm. and I felt like it was like a gap in the market where it's like why isn't why 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 yeah. do people use Susie more because you're in dictionary corner and it's kind of like a lot of the times the comedian whoever's in dictionary corner will do a sort of monologue and sort of Susie will be sat next to him and I was just like well why don't we include Susie in it mm. and then I think I thought I'd only do it three times so I did like I I did like the first one was like I'm in love with Susie second one is that she's broken my heart and we've uh, she's dumped me and then the third one is I'm trying to win her back or whatever so I thought in terms of a three act structure mm-hmm. three episodes over f- three or four years that's kind of that would be enough but then they kept hiring me <laughs> and so it expanded and expanded and now it's just sort of like me and Susie have this sort of on again off again relationship where I'll write, you know, I really enjoy it. I, 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 if they, when they've booked me, I'll think, what, what shall I write for Susie this time? Mm-hmm. And I'll spend like, you know, a week or two weeks putting together some songs and some poems and stuff. Um, and I'll be thinking, yeah, I want it to be funny in the room. And I want Jimmy to laugh and John to laugh, you know, and I want the audience to laugh. And then I want it to work as TV, but also, you know, when I sit down after I've finished a song and it goes back to the game, Susie will whisper to me and she'll go, that was great. Or she'll go, well done. 
or she'll go, I loved that song this week. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she'll, and I, I, you know, she gives you feedback. And so I'm writing for her as well. And, um, and I think what I, what I did and then what Susie's been great about is that we've made it kind of like into this running, it's a running gag, but it's also this running storyline that, that means that, and it's the same thing that I tried to do when I was doing, when I started out doing stand-up. I was like, my 20-minute set, which was sort of like uh, what I ended up doing on Russell Howard's Good News, mm-hmm. it had a beginning, a middle and an end. And you could put me on at the beginning of the show, you could put me on in the middle of the show, you could put me on at the end of the show, but I was a self-contained show, right? Which had a 20-minute mm-hmm. structure to it, uh, where by the end of it, the whole audience was singing along and then they go to the interval or they go home or whatever. But there was other acts on, but for the for, for the purposes of when I was on, it was like, it was a standalone bit. And I guess that's what I ended up doing with 8 out of 10 Cats, which is like, when I'm on, you know that there's going to be a thing with Susie and, you know. Yeah. And it's 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 fun and it's, it's out of, it's out of, you know, respect and I, I love her. I think she's brilliant. Mm. So, obviously, 2014, you ended up with the sitcom Uncle. Yes. Um, how did that come about and how much of that is your writing because the thing about it is see watching that I think of my growing up and my nephews and I kind of I see a lot of myself in that program don't know if that's a good thing or uh, a bad thing I, 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 I get that I get that a lot like a lot of people come up to me and they say um, that um, they see themselves on screen and obviously it's something that uh yeah i think it's re- i think it's it's really it's really brilliant it's like um say so i so i don't write uncle i i um uh, it was it's written by it was originally written by oliver refson who directed it and mm-hmm. then it was uh, and then his uh, partner lila vanderberg she uh, started writing it with him in the second series and then I write the songs and it's kind of but oh I wrote the songs um, so it, it's, it's sort of collaborative mm-hmm. but but at the same time they they very much write it and then you get feedback but it's their thing but well, the way it came about was that I was doing uh, in 2011 I was doing my show Death Dream in and it was the first time I got to the Pleasants. Mm-hmm. So my very, you know, when I saw Al Murray in 97, I never thought I'd ever perform at the Pleasants. Right. And then in 2011, I'm performing at the Pleasants. And Henry Normal, who um, runs Baby Cow, or used to run Baby Cow, he ran Baby Cow at the time. Henry Normal uh, is um, a poet who uh, has been involved in some of the biggest... Uh, British sitcoms throughout the 2000s and was Steve Coogan's uh, writing partner and I was a huge Steve Coogan fan when I was growing uh, growing up and uh, getting into comedy uh, I think The Man Who Thinks He's It is one of the best live shows it's the actually I think it's the best live show that it's ever been put performed I think it's incredible and um, and 
I had all the DVDs and Henry Norman was on the extras in the DVDs. And he's a, sort of like a behind the scenes guy when it comes to baby cow. Um, and uh, I came out on stage one day and he's on the front row and I'm like, fucking hell, it's Henry Normal. And I'm like one of the, well, I, at the time I was one of the few people, he's gone back to performing again. But at the time I was one of the few people that would come out. He was a TV executive. Mm. It's one of the few people that could sort of like go, that's Henry Normal. <laughs> he's like, oh, fucking hell. Um, and then um, I got nominated that year and I won Dave's Best Joke and all of that stuff. And basically Channel 4 said, oh, we're doing these blaps. Would you like to do some blaps? Which are like these five minute um, online video things. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, of course. And they said, who do you want to work with? And I was like, oh, Baby Cow. Um, and they were like, well, it, and Baby Cow weren't really working with Channel 4 that much. They were mainly BBC. Mm-hmm. And um uh and so i met up with henry and they said that they'd like to sort of like do it i think i was pitching ideas with josh widdicombe and another comedian called henry packer right. and we were pitching ideas at baby cow as well and so i'd sort of like had got to know them um, after the, you know, after 2011, and then the blaps came along, and I got to work with them. And Henry kind of like guided me through what to do. I was going to write these sort of like five minute sketches, mm-hmm. and one of them was about um, a guy talking to a kid on a bench and giving him bad advice. Right. So one of them was literally it was about me, my stage persona, being like a fuck up, talking to this kid, giving him terrible advice. Mm-hmm. and uh, then Henry said what you should do is take some stuff that you've already done like take a couple of songs and a poem and film those because this is your moment to get paid for something that you've not got paid for yet because mm-hmm. I'd written all of these songs and I'd never been paid for it because I was trying to get get my name known and he said this is your first opportunity to get paid for some of the stuff that you said so take your best songs your best poems and let's do them and I was like, great. So I put everything else on the side, did then. Blaps worked out fine. The music videos still stand up, they're great. And then a couple of months later, mm-hmm. um, a couple of months later, um, they got this script in. And maybe I'm remembering it a little bit differently. Maybe it's a year later or whatever, mm-hmm. but the script came in for this pilot called Uncle. Henry read it, sent it to me. And I read it and I was like, this is, this is good and he said come in we'll have a meeting and I had a meeting where I met Oliver Refson who wrote it mm-hmm. and we just chatted about it a bit and Henry was sort of like he had it all planned out in his head he was just it was about an out of work actor that hangs out with his nephew and um, uh, Henry said if you change it to a musician then Nick can write a song every week Yeah. and Ollie was like alright and then and then he was like, do you two, do you, do you, how do you two feel about each other? Do you like Ollie? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, do you like Nick? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, great. Let's film it in September, you know? And it was, it was like that. Let's film it in September. And it's just like, what? Or maybe it was November. He goes, right, right. Let's film it in November. And I was like, oh, fuck. And I didn't audition or anything. Was, like, he'd been to see me and I'd worked with them. And he's just like, this is perfect for you. 
and I hadn't done loads of um, screen acting. I'd done some student films and stuff, but like not loads of stuff. And I hadn't acted for a few years because I wasn't writing theatre anymore. So I was like, oh, fuck, can I do it? And then um, we did the pilot. And because I'd done the blaps with Channel 4, the pilot was with Channel 4. Mm-hmm. Channel 4 passed on it. They didn't. I think we filmed it in November, came out in December. And it was like, fuck, uh, of 2013, maybe. And then uh, Channel 4 passed on it. And Shane Allen, who was the head of uh, Channel 4, moved over to BBC. And he took Uncle with him. He said, if Channel 4 aren't going to do anything with it, then we'll do it. And um, uh, and I think I've talked about this in an interview. And then Channel 4 came out and I said, just to be clear, we didn't lose Uncle to BBC. We didn't want it. So you go, okay, fine. So just to clarify, they didn't want it. It was it was it was thrown out, and so we went over to BBC and we had to refilm the first episode again, and um, and Henry was just like, let's not do a pilot. Let's just ask to see if we can get a series, and um, uh, so we did a series, and it was like that. It was like it was like I thought, oh wow, TV's easy. And little did I know that it's fucking impossible to get anything made. And I, it, was an, it was an absolute fluke hmm. that A, the pilot got made, and B, that we, after the pilot got like rejected, that it went over to BBC and it got, you know, I owe Shane Allen like my like everything. I owe Jimmy Carr everything. I owe Henry Normal hmm. everything. Like there's, there's these people in my life that I'm shy. Um, I don't have that self, I've got like self-belief, but not real self-confidence. So I can write something and think, I think this might be good, but I don't think that I'm the best person in the room or anything like that. Yeah. And um, and you have these people that literally, I did an audition for eight out of 10 cats. I struggled and Jimmy Carr saw yeah. that there was something worthwhile in me to push. Henry Normal, if I'd have auditioned for Uncle, I wouldn't have got it. But he gave it to me and it was like, and I, and I did a good job. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, you know, there's, there's some scenes in Uncle where I go, oh, I did, I, I nailed that one. And that's do you know what I mean. And it's kind of like, it, 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 yeah. it's like one of those things. I, I didn't know I could do it until I did it. And then when I did it, it was just like, oh, right. This is something I can do. And um and then with Shane Allen as well, it's like he took that show and he put it on, he put it on BBC and it got a thing. Um, I, the fact that it's about a fractured family, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about diversity at the moment, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, Uncle was always sort of like leaning towards that, that stuff. Um, you know, uh, Lila, one of the writers, she's, I think she's from Los Angeles and, uh, Ollie is New York and they're very sort of like, um, you know, they've got their finger on the pulse and Lila is all up to date with all of like um, youth culture and um, online culture and everything like that. And, um, and so they've always kind of like uh, uh, written about stuff, contemporary stuff and, um and so in uncle you've got kind of like this family that's made up of all of these people that um 
that have found each other. Also, it's a, my my character was about, was uh, although it was played to, and I think maybe if we'd have done it again, the first episode, I think that my characters it starts off with the suicide attempts, and I think that it, the suicide attempt should have perhaps been played a little bit more straight because he's got like this contraption where he's got this radio on a, a pulley and he's going to cut it. Like it's like a wily e. coyote contraption. And mm-hmm. I just think that that should have been a little bit straighter, but uh, the way that, that I, you know, I've always dealt with depression um, and I'm, I didn't have that opportunity to be, you know, choosy about what I did. Mm-hmm. So I was very lucky that when uncle came in, it was something that was absolutely in my wheelhouse, something that I believed in. It was about a guy, you know, if you look at it from my character's point of view, it was about a guy that had tried to kill himself and was dealing with um, depression and having fucked up his life. And he was creative. He was a musician that didn't know what his future was. And it's all of these things that I could absolutely relate to. So I was very lucky that it became such a personal thing to the point where everyone just assumes that it was my thing, but it was mm. literally, it's a perfect storm of uh, me meeting this writer and working with Henry and this script coming in and it being so similar to the script that I nearly wrote for these blaps and for it to be kind of like, well, this is great. When it came in, it was just like, well, I don't have to write this at all. And, um, uh, you know, we were, we all were so close. I'm still in contact with um, Elliot, um, the kid um, mm-hmm. who's a, who's a grown up now, who's you know doing stand up gigs, and he asked me for like advice and stuff. And um, I'm still in contact with Ollie and Lila. I'm still in contact with Henry. And mm-hmm. um, so that's kind of, of like you have kind of then it's went full circle. To the, you you have kind of light an uncle to that boy. And he's, it was, you know, I mean, it's, I, that's I, mental. I loved, I loved that kid. Um, uh, you know, and it was really difficult for him because he was eleven when we did the pilot. Mm-hmm. And he was twelve when we did the, um, we, when we did the series, um, and I've watched him grow up over about four or five years. And it wasn't. I think when you're an adult, um, and you, I've done, I've done, you know, not loads and loads, but I've done quite a lot of TV. And you make connections with people and then you go on to your next job and then you lose contact with them, you know? Um, and, you know, uh, you see someone every day for months and months and then you don't see them for years. Uh, you haven't fallen out. It's just the way it happens. Um, and you move on to the next job. But with the kid, he was 11 and it took up between the age of 11 and 16 filming that, which is a big part of your youth you know years, yeah. um, and it's kind of like and then when we finish filming you're all meant to just move on and drop each other and move on to the next job and he didn't have a next job to go to he, you know he had school so we, I felt like responsible for him so we've always kept in contact and um, you know I always made sure that he was eating all right and I'd take him out for food and <laughs> the cinema and you know uh, and I love him I, you know um, and you know he's in his early 20s now which is absolutely crazy to think about um and he's just the most talented person that i know 
you know he's kind of he can he could pick up any instrument and he could learn how to play it by the end of lunch mm. and you know, he's was making films when you know little short films when i first met him he can act you know um he can write uh he, he started doing stand-up he's just he's he's like incredible and i'll definitely go and yeah. check him out more look for some more of your stuff um yeah off the back of uncle is that is that how you get the heavy entertainment is that how you you kind of get that gig I think Heavy Entertainment came from uh, the nomination in 2000 and, uh, was it 2011, 2000 and, I got nominated uh-huh. twice, got 11, 2011, 2013. And so Heavy Entertainment came about because, um, I think it came about around about the same time as Uncle. Mm-hmm. So Christmas 2012, Christmas 2012, BBC Radio 1 were going to do a comedy slot and they hadn't done a comedy slot since Chris Morris. Right. And they said, Nick, will you do an hour-long comedy slot to be broadcast on Boxing Day uh, on BBC Radio 1? We haven't done any comedy since Chris Morris. And I was like, fuck. So I wrote an hour of radio called uh, Nick Helms' uh, Christmas Spectacular. And um, it was sort of like had guests and it was had songs and music. And we recorded it at the BBC uh, Radio Theatre, uh, which is one of the most amazing theatres to do any recording in. And um, yeah, recorded this hour. And, um, uh, and it came out really good. It came out on Boxing Day in 2012 and then 2013 came along and they brought me in. And they said, uh, will you do a pilot for uh, Heavy Entertainment? Uh, will you do a pilot for us? And I was like, oh, I don't really want to. I sort of, what had I done? I'd just done Live at the Electric. Mm-hmm. And we had, uh, we were a band and we were on last. And um, uh, so they'd film the entire show started at seven and then we'd go on about 10 30 and play some songs and as soon as the band started the entire audience would always get up and leave right and so when you so if you ever see any footage from the first series of live at the electric when i was on it mm-hmm. um you can see my dreams dying because uh, we were on tv but the whole audience is just like literally filing out and um and I, they said, do you want to do like a half hour pilot for a, your own TV series? And I was naive and I was like, I, I don't feel like I'm ready yet. I'll do it the next time you ask me, right? Hmm. And didn't, I didn't realise that there probably wouldn't be another time. I was like, this is my life now. And um, they, they were like, we want something that's like the radio show, but for TV. And I was just like, look, I've had a really bad experience doing live stuff with Live at the Electric. I got a lot of abuse online. Um, and I don't really, I, I don't really want to put my, st- I think I'd got into my head that my stand up only works in the room, only works as a live gig, and it doesn't work on TV. And they said, look, here's the deal it's the end of a tax year, we've got this money to spend you've got four weeks 
to do anything you want with it. So why don't you just go away and do it, and then, um, uh, and then you know, um, we'll see what happens. And um, yeah, okay. So I think this is the big. So I think the Christmas spectacular was Christmas two thousand and eleven. Mm-hmm. And so then we're at the beginning of 2012 here, right? Uh-huh. Um, is that right? Is that right? I can't remember my times. It's either 2012 or 2013. That's no, 2013, 2013. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, by the, before the end of the tax year, I went from, and I think some comedians plan what they're going to do for their life, for, if they ever got their own TV show for their whole life, you know. And for me, it was literally you've got three weeks to plan it. So I uh, picked this title, Heavy Entertainment. Um, I wrote the pilot, we filmed it, we edited it. Uh, it came, it was very different from the series, mm-hmm. but I thought the pilot was good. It was all glitzy, but it was kind of, I had a breakdown and we did it. And I thought it came out really well. And then I said, do you want a series? We'd like you to have a series because then we'll have Uncle. And then as a companion piece, you'll have Heavy Entertainment. So we filmed the first series of Uncle. Then I wrote um, Heavy Entertainment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at that point, it was just like, well, what do I want to do with it? Now that I've got more than three weeks to work out what to do with it, what do I want to do with it? And I realized that... I, as much as I liked the pilot, the pilot was really silly and it reminded me of something like Shooting Stars. Uh, it, it was it was like very much like a Vic and Bob, like Harry Hill mm-hmm. inspired kind of half hour of silliness. But I I was just like, I can't have a breakdown every week. And so it worked all right as a pilot, but as a series, I was just like, the series has got to be different from that. Mm. And I wanted to make it feel like it was like a low ceiling in Edinburgh, which was hot and sweaty with the audience that were really packed in. I didn't want it to look like a lot of other um, TV comedy shows. And I wanted it to be very sort of personal and unique. And so, um, yeah, so I, I didn't do Edinburgh in 2014. Oh, that's not true. I did two nights stand at the Grand. Right. While we, so we filmed Heavy Entertainment in the hot summer. We edited Heavy Entertainment during the uh, during the summer holidays. I, got, I went up and did two nights in Edinburgh one weekend, and then I came back down again and continued editing it. It was really like it was Heavy Entertainment is something I'm so incredibly proud of. The actual gigs in the room were incredible. They were some of the best gigs I've ever done really intense and that's a lot of that's the ceiling and the art art to, to, to direction and the fact that there was sweat dripping off of me and the executives were like you've got to mop up all the sweat and get rid of he's sweating too much and i was just like no the sweat is my act you know yeah. you've got to be able to see how much i'm sweating you know and um so there was like loads of disagreements about all of that sort of stuff and then um and it was a new format for a new show i did a short film called elephant which basically uh, uses a lot of jump cuts. To, mm-hmm. You spend an afternoon with these two people, uh, but it's a 10 minute film, but you feel like you've spent an afternoon with them, right? And it jump cuts all the way through it. And Heavy Entertainment was a two and a half hour record, a two hour record. And the idea was that we would jump cut our way through an evening. Yeah. So you'd get a song here, a joke here, a routine here. And then what happened was in the edit, 
we were given a week to edit each episode. We were given six six weeks to edit an entire series, which is like you want a minimum of two weeks to edit. A, it took a week to edit a ten minute film. So to come up with your a new format to take a two hour live performance and edit it down to half an hour, make it make sense and make it coherent. Um, so we ended up making it like uh, trying to make it um, like linear so that so that it flowed from beginning to end. So it felt like a two hour record was actually a half hour record. And we didn't have the um, we didn't have the benefit and the luxury of experimenting in the edit with how to present this series. So it was filmed to be one way and it ended up being edited in a more traditional way. And um, I think that uh, it's, uh, I think it was sort of compromised by the end of it. But I would say that there are three episodes of Heavy Entertainment that I think are outstanding and I'm very proud of. And mm. there's three episodes that I think, I think we filmed two episodes a week. We had a three week record. So we had two episodes a, w a week. Right. And so it was the, it was the equivalent of um, doing like two Edinburgh shows a week, like mm. two completely unique, brand new Edinburgh shows every week with new material, new songs, new set, new costumes. You know, everything was new, new bits, new audience participation. There was something new every week. And we were doing two a week. We'd record on the Tuesday and on the Friday. So we'd record Tuesday and then we'd have wednesday thursday to get the next episode ready and then we'd record friday and it was an absolute fucking clusterfuck and there's three episodes in that that i think are absolutely astonishingly amazing i'm so proud of them i can't believe that i'm that i i'm associated with it um uh it's just you know it was its own thing. Stuart Lee's comedy vehicle was out at the time, and it was like that's how you do live comedy. Mm -hmm. And it's like we had to we had to reinvent the wheel because it was just like well, we don't want to be like Stuart Lee's comedy vehicle, which is the best stand-up show on TV, but we don't want to be like Live at the Apollo, which is sort of glitzy and mainstream. So we had to work out another way of doing something, and I think that nothing looked like heavy entertainment nothing uh, felt like it. it was totally authored and it was mm. it was my it was my pet project my you know which it took me some convincing to do it because i was just scared of online criticism and um uh and it getting mangled by uh, people that didn't really get my act and um and there was a bit of that but I mean, I really had to stick to my guns, and I didn't make a lot of um, a lot of uh, friends, I suppose. Oh, yeah, but, uh, but I've just stuck to my guns about what I what I wanted the show to be. Yeah, and that's the thing. If you are passionate about it, you, it needs to be the way you want it. I can mind seeing like one episode. It must have been maybe I don't know episode four or five. That was the first time I came to it. Yeah. And I must have watched the following week, and it was, I don't know, a, four or five years later that I, I found the DVD. I thought, I'm going to buy that DVD. So I've yeah. been watching it. I've watched the DVD maybe three times in the last year. And I, I absolutely oh, really? love it. Yeah. Because I could remember initially watching it, and I thought, 
the set up of it, I thought I, I need to find that and, and watch it right yeah. through. I I love it. The, I think you could. Pro- I could probably count the amount of people that watched Heaven Entertainment on. Uh, if I took my shoes off on my hands and my feet, mm. like nobody ever. And I'm so proud of Uncle. Um, and people come up to people mention Uncle every day. And I, I think Heavy Entertainment was never repeated. It wasn't really advertised at the yeah. time. Um, it was. It kind of like. Um, it got buried in a way, and we put so much into it. Like everyone involved in that project put so much into it. Um, it was the same art department from Uncle that I took over to Heavy Entertainment. And um, yeah, I just think there was nothing, I don't think there's been anything like it since either. I think it was so unique and special. And I go on about it all the time. I'm always like, Heavy Entertainment, you should watch Heavy Entertainment. And I, you know, um, and I just think it's a shame because not enough people saw it. And I would have killed to do a second series because yeah. I think we learned so much with the first series that, you know, well, let's do a second series. I was ready to go. I'd had like, I planned out what all the episodes were going to be about and everything. And then mm-hmm. it never came about. Uh, and so you just move on with your life. But I, but I was very lucky to have that opportunity and I've got that now. Yeah. I've got it on DVD somewhere. And, yeah. Yeah. I think so, you can get it from iTunes as well, guys. <laughs> so your band, um, we were talking earlier about you were you were talking about your friend Rob played the guitar. Mm. That's is that's no Rob that's in the the band on Heavy Entertainment, is it? No. 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 Um, so, so then Rob uh, Rob went his own way, mm. and um, and then um, I started working with David Trent's right, uh, right, on music. Him. And then, um, yeah, and then and then it made more sense to sort of like start working with other comedians that could play instruments at that point. Um, right, because earlier on when you were talking about when kind of everything fucked up and you went back home to live with your parents and you were writing, mm-hmm. doing all your, all the jobs that you wanted to do and you said mm-hmm. about the astronaut and things like that. So that's one mm-hmm. of your... That's one of the jokes on Heavy Entertainment when the the boy with the guitar, David Trent, and you ask him what he wants to do and he wants to be an astronaut, and you're like, oh, you're fucked up, man. You, you're I far think that's, too old. Yeah. So that's one of the jokes that sticks out. So see, when you said that earlier on, I was like, that's mm. amazing to think. That's probably yeah. about 10 years old before you've actually maybe used it. I never, I never thought about that either. But, but also going back to that, it's just kind of like, you know, there are all these things on that list that I, that I didn't think I could do, or I, you mm-hmm. know, or I didn't, and I wanted something that was immediate, like stand-up comedy. But through stand-up comedy, I've had the opportunity to write music, be in a band, make a short film. I've acted in films. I've had my own sitcom. I've um, been in other people's sitcoms. I've you know presented my own food show i've had my own stand-up show do you know what i mean so like when i went up to edinburgh by the time by the time i did russell howard's good news i'd been doing edinburgh for 14 years and i had given up on all of my uh not not dreams but i'd given up on any kind of thought about the fact that 
a I could make a career out of this and I was literally just in it for the self-satisfaction of it just sort of like right mm. what am I going to write about this year what am I going to do this year and it was sort of like and I was fine with that I'd made my piece I'd given up on kind of like pursuing kind of like any sort of acting career or anything like that I, I was like right okay this is this is and so when everything came along I'm very grateful for that because I, it took me so long to get anywhere that that I was very grateful for the opportunities that came along, mm. you know. Whereas if it had come to me as soon as I'd finished university, you know, it's a bit like uncle being that easy to get made. It was like you just assume that that's you take things for granted and you just assume that that's how TV works. Yeah. And like, do you, do you want to do a pilot for your own stand up TV show? And I was like, no, I'll wait until next year or whatever. And they were like, Nick, what the fuck are you doing? Just do it. You know, this opportunity doesn't come out. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm the star of my own city. Do you know what I mean? So it's sort of like, so, so to have waited that long for the good stuff to start coming along. Um, I just, I'm glad that I'm patient. I'm always, I, you know, that's like the best thing to sort of, you know, when people are starting out, you, had, you, you know, I had a five-year plan where I'll do stand-up for five years and hopefully by the end of five years, I'll make enough money to pay my rent. And, um, and I managed to do it in like three years, I think. Right. But I had in my head five years. And just to be realistic about it, it doesn't happen overnight. But if you work really hard at something and you listen and you get good, you know, you, um, you, you accept the fact that you're not very good at something and you open yourself up to the criticism, constructive criticism, and you allow yourself to improve, then um, you listen to the audience, you listen to, you know, other comedians, what they have to say. Mm-hmm. And then you listen to what you think and, you know, you filter everything through what you think. So it's like, I don't agree with that person. I do agree with that person. What do I think? Um, then you can, you can, you can get, you can get places. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of, um, but it just takes patience and uh, persistence and hard work and, um, uh, and I'm going to say talent, but I think talent is something that you can also learn. Mm. You know, you can be a very talented guitar player, but that's because you put the hours into to do it. So I'm not yeah. like talking about a natural given gift. Desire, and if you want something, if you want something uh, enough to sort of like make it happen, then um, and I haven't got to exactly where I want to get now, mm. but um, but I'm every day you kind of like try and sort of like push yourself in a direction. You try and achieve something every day yeah, uh, towards getting something done. Two hours in, I don't want to keep you too much longer because it's, it's a long slog for you. Um, so yeah. obviously one of, the, one of the hardest things I reckon you would have had to do in comedy would be get a Tory Baroness to sound funny. So, how how proud are you of that? I mean, I found that I, I it came across in the show as well. Mm. 
But I found that very conflicting because, um, because you know, it's not about, it, it's, it's not necessarily about politics. Um, well, it is, it is about politics. It's, 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 so I had to, I did a show called Stand Up, uh, Stand Up to Stand Cancer. Stand Up and Deliver. Stand Up and Deliver for Stand Up to Cancer, yeah. yeah. And uh, I had, there was a bunch of comedians that had to teach a bunch of celebrities how to do comedy. Um, and that came about right before the pandemic hit. And then the pandemic hit the week we were meant to be filming. Um, and then it went away. You know, uh, so th that that program disappeared, mm -hmm. and then at the end of the year, there was like, oh, the restrictions have been lifted a bit, and then it came back again, and they said, "Are you still interested?" And I was like, "Yeah, I mean, I've been locked up for eight, <laughs> ten months, or however long it was. I'd do anything to leave the flat right now. It's for charity as well. Great." Um. Uh. And um. Yeah, and it was good to be included with that group of people, and uh, so there was like all the all these reasons why I did it, um, and then you know you get the list of celebrities, and one of them's a Tory Baroness, and I was literally there was a dancer, there was a singer, there was an actor, um, and uh, there was a guy that used to be in the Communards, who's now a, a, a priest, yeah, right? yeah. a vicar. And um, and so it's like, right, well, I sing and I dance on stage sometimes and uh, I can act and I'd be all right with any of the showbiz people. Um, politics isn't my strong point and I'm not a Tory and um, and I haven't been brought up to be a Tory and I have an issue with this. Right. <laughs> so I'll be all right with anyone, I think, as long as it's not the Tory. And then we get there and it's like, you got the Tory. And I was like, fuck, because the, the issue with that is like, and out of every, you go, everyone has had stage experience. Like the dancer's been on stage, the singer's been on stage. The, the reverend is in front of like, uh, I mean, I'm not religious. What do you call them? All of his church goers. Uh, yeah. Um, constituent, no, not his constituency. Um, all of his churchgoers, yeah, all of his, all of his churchy people, they all turn up every week, and he's got to talk in front of them, right? Yeah, them, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's right. And uh, and so everyone's on stage, so you can sort of, and then you got the Tory Baroness who has to make all of these speeches, you know, Saeed Avasi, yeah, Baroness Saeed Avasi. And she's got to get up in front of make all these speeches. So everyone's used to public speaking. And I was just like, um, I can, I'm, I'm very different from my stage persona. My stage persona is an act that I've worked out and worked out what to do. And it's very instinctive now and I can slip in and out of it. And it's like, um, uh, but I had to sort of like draw a line and separate myself from that because the temptation to act like that all the time is kind of, ah. you know, you need to, you need to have that, like, I'm off stage now. I'm not going to be a prick. Um, but the, in terms of teaching someone else stand up, it's not about me saying, 
will get up on stage, go up to that person in the front row, call them a cunt, shout in their face, and then fuck off afterwards. Do you know what I mean? It's not about teaching someone to do stand-up the way I would do stand-up or the way I do stand-up. Yeah. It's about working out it's about working out what that person, who that person is, and who they are going to be on stage. And everyone's unique and different. And um, and that's sort of a really fun process because it's not like do what I tell you to do. It's about you're going to work out who you are on stage and I'm going to stand right next year and we're going to work it out together. And I'm going to try and push you through your limits you know, and if you don't want to do something, I'm going to shout at you until you do it because you'll feel better afterwards. And I know you will. And I know what it's like to go up on stage and to bottle it. Yeah. Um, and I've never forgiven myself for moments where I've just sort of like lost my nerve. And, and I don't want that to happen to whoever I've got. And you've got a five minute gig and I want to prepare you to get out there. Don't give a fuck about what anyone's thinking and just go out there and do your act. You've got the Tory Baroness and it's just kind of like, right. So I don't want you to win because it's a PR job. You know, everyone's going to go either. Yes. She's the Tory Baroness or they're going to go. Um, uh, I don't like Tories, but she's all right. Yeah. You know, either way, the Tory, the Tories have won. Do you know what I mean? You have helped do uh, PR for the party and for that individual. And I had a real conflict with that. And mm. then I just boiled it down to the fact that she was um, going to turn 50. And um uh you know i i didn't want to lose because i wanted to, i wanted everyone to know that i'm i'm great at what i do yeah <laughs> but i didn't want to i didn't want to win because i didn't want everyone to sort of like turn into a tory and to i didn't want to contribute to other people's suffering you know so then the way that you deal with it she goes it's a 50 year old woman or she's about to turn 50 and on her bucket list of things to do is yeah, stand up. try stand up and I go back to me being 25 and on my list of things to do was try stand up and I know that when I was 25 and I tried stand up for the first time it changed my entire life and it put it on a new course and everything that's good in my life now is because of that decision I made to do that mm -hmm. and she's going to be 50 and I know I absolutely can see it from her point of view that you don't want to get to your deathbed and think I never tried it. People say stand up must be scary. And I say stand up is scary, but I think it's scarier to not do stand up for me. So mm -hmm. for me to get to the end of my life and look back and say, I never tried it. I don't even know if I was good or bad or anything. I just never tried it. And I think that's sort of what I, what's scarier doing it or not doing it? Well, not doing it. So I do it, you know? Um, and, and that's how I kind of like managed to break it. I stopped thinking about her as this Baroness, this Tory Baroness. And I started thinking about her as um, a, a, a real person, you know, she's a working class uh, Muslim mother, 
from up north and uh, she's about to turn 15 she wants to try stand up and then that's how we kind of like started to relate to each other and that was what what cracked it in my head for me and then we got on really well and she did a really great job and um and i enjoyed teaching and uh sharing what i've learned over the last decade with someone else and it paid off um and i thought when you watch that show everyone had a different technique um and um and i think that Saida would have done well if she'd have had any of the other comedians, mm-hmm. you know. I think that I don't know if she'd have won, and she would have done a different show, you know. She would have done a different act, but she was on day one. She was very sort of like uptight and straight, mm-hmm. um, but she was the best at talking in public, doing public speaking. And I think that any of the other comedians could have got a good performance out of her. But, um, uh, and I'd like to think that I could have done a good job with any of the other celebrities. Yeah. But I think we were a really good combination because we did have that difficulty working with each other. That idealism in our, uh, the ideology in our heads was different from each other's. And yeah, we had to get over some differences. Yeah, it must be so hard to shift that kind of elephant in the room, really, and it's to get. Well, yeah, and I, t- I, I told her as soon as as soon as we got put together, I said, "Look, I didn't. You were the last person I wanted. You know, I wasn't horrible. I was just sort of like, but I'm gonna do a good job. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. We're gonna get we're gonna get through this together, and we're gonna do it." And we did, and it was great. And um, you know, I, th- I don't. It's a difficult one. I think. That, I think. I don't know about any of the repercussions, and I. I know that she's do. She's she's done very well, and uh, we uh, we exchange uh, text messages every so often, and kind of like um, um, we we explored the idea of like working with each other again on other stuff. I think it's a really good combination. She's lovely. We get on really well. Um, but but at the same time, I am conflicted with all that, that stuff, and I don't know about the repercussions. But as a TV show, those I thought it's some of the best TV I've ever been involved in. Yeah. Like in terms of not a sitcom, no, you know, but in terms of just like telly, what you watch in the evening. I thought that that like I thought we nailed it, and I think that dynamic between us was really good. Yeah, I really I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I thought it was good. Yeah. So, obviously, I mean, we're really tight for tight. Your last show there, Phoenix, Phoenix from the Flames, um, you ended up, you had to do it as a live stream, didn't you? Uh, yeah, well, we'd, we'd filmed it on one of the last dates in London. Mm-hmm. So I was halfway through the tour um at the end of 2019 i did it in edinburgh in 2019 uh, it was my first full hour with bells and whistles and stuff uh you know costumes and a set and all this other stuff and um it's the first time i've done anything like that in six years mm-hmm. 
uh, we're halfway through the tour and then um, we filmed one of the last London dates and then COVID happened and we were never meant to show the video because I, I was going to rewrite the show in between um, the end of the first half and the beginning of the second half. I was going to tighten it all up and, you know, put in some punchlines that weren't there and, you know, finish it, make it all brilliant uh, so that I could film it later. And then, um, so we, I had this video that was for reference only, really. And um, uh, I, we kept delaying the, the tour. It was like, oh, well, it's been delayed uh, to September. You know, it's meant to be March. And so it got delayed to September. Then it got delayed to January. Then it got delayed again. And then it got delayed something like four four times. And then I was just like, do you know what? This show, Phoenix from the Flame, was about a really bad period in my life. It was about 2000 and it was about how I was feeling between 2016 to 2019. Mm -hmm. Like this four-year period in my life when I was going through a breakup. Um, I was going through a very difficult period of time. Uh, oh, it's just I, like in terms of mental health, I was really sort of like rock bottom, mm -hmm. and um, and I wrote a show about it. And then COVID happened, and then I started thinking differently about stuff. I'm uh, like I'm not like not better and not worse, but just felt differently about stuff. And I mm. felt like the Phoenix from the Flame show was like a time capsule of how I was feeling in 2019. Right. And so when the tour got delayed to 2022, I was like, I don't want to do it in 2022. I wanted to do it in 2019 and 2020. But yeah. I would have written a new show in 2020 and I'd have done that. I don't want to still be doing the same show just because people have bought tickets for it. I don't want to still be doing the same show in 2022, three or four years after I'd started writing it. So I just said, like, let's polish it, let's cancel it. And when we're allowed back out, I'll write a new show. And luckily I had a recording. And so I cancelled the show and everyone was like, oh, we were, we, oh. And I was like, you don't want to see it. You don't want to see me being forced to do a four-year-old show. But we'll stream the recording that I did and we'll do that. And we did that and it was brilliant. <laughs> and, uh, and I watched the show. I watched the show with the audience because I'd obviously never seen it before because I was performing it. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time I've seen, it's like a two hour show, slightly shorter than this chat that we've had. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and we watched it and I was like, oh, it's really good. And then I was like, oh, I would like to do it again, actually, but we've canceled it now. But um yeah, I just thought it was good. There was another show that I did, which was like a rock concert that I did in um, 2016, 2017, mm -hmm. uh, called All Killer, Some Filler. And we did that the first year of lockdown. And then the second year of lockdown, we did Phoenix and the Flames. And um, it was just a really good way to sort of like do some sort of event, an online event, with some shows that I'd never... I'd, I'd recorded these shows and I was like, they're not good enough to show to people. I was ashamed of them. And then it took someone else to watch them to say, Nick, they're actually good. Yeah. And then I was like, all right. And so we showed them and then people liked them. And yeah, you know. I'm, my own, I'm my own worst critic. And mm. you know. is, is there any 
prospect of like a DVD release or anything like that because I never get round to seeing it. Uh, what we locked down and oh, things right. like that. Um, I didn't yeah, realise it was I mean, happening till after the event. So. Yeah, I think uh, me and uh, Chris at Go Faster Stripe, um, me and Chris uh, were in talks about kind of like releasing it all. I think that you can do downloads. And when I get the tour together, I'll get some stuff printed up so that I've got some merchandise and I can sign stuff for people. And um, so there will be a DVD in, at some point. Yeah, uh, and I think you can... Magic. I think I think you can get digital downloads at the moment, but like, yeah, that's that's the aim. But I'm so sort of like, um, I'm so self-critical that I kind of like have a bunch of stuff that I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't. I'm not ready for people to see yet. <laughs> and so with those things, it's just like, oh yeah, great. Uh, we'll, there'll be a DVD at some point, yeah. Yeah. Right. So. Just before we go then, obviously the, the podcast is called Time for Heroes. And what I do every week is ask. We've got a little um, bit of time. Yeah, ask the guest um, to pick four heroes to come in for dinner. So fire away with that. And obviously you need to tell me what you're cooking them for dinner as well. But you can do this as quickly as possible if you want. You can just fire through them. And we'll get a wee discussion at the end and then that'll be us. Okay, right. So, who are my heroes? Um, well, who would we? I, okay, so my heroes are Alice Cooper, mm-hmm. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Campbell, John Carpenter. Those are people that um, filmmakers and uh, musicians and people that um have sort of had a big influence in my life uh my real life heroes are my mum and my dad harry hill henry normal i think he's my friend so it's a bit weird but i would say i think um uh Ramesh is one of my heroes. I think he's incredible. He's as close, I think, that we've got to 1990s peak Jack D. Right. Like he's like the next, the next iteration of that. He's like, I love him. I think he's so brilliant and he's worked so hard, but he's also very, you know, kind. That's the same thing with Harry. Like what I said about Jimmy Carr. In terms of how generous he is, I think Harry Hill is probably the kindest. Um, he he spent ten minutes telling me about how much he loved Heavy Entertainment, mm. and um, uh, and then he sort of he, he wrote me a letter afterwards. I told him how much I loved his Channel Four show, and then he wrote me a letter and he included a DVD of his Channel Four show with it. And it was kind of like I didn't give him my address, you know, so he. He got it all through production and through agents and stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, and he's been sort of like a mentor ever since. And, I, you know, so if I was cooking a dinner, maybe it'd be like a big thank you dinner to all yeah. of the people. I wouldn't be the person I am without Alice Cooper because mm. Alice Cooper is one thing on stage and another thing off stage. He's like a villain on stage. He doesn't care what people think about him on stage and when he's off stage because it's all entertainment. 
yeah. that's what that's kind of what I do. So I guess I would cook for. Oh, yeah, but I'd really love to meet John Carpenter, who is sort of like a musical. So who would I have? You can have, have them all, Nick. You can have them all. That's just what I would happens. have them all. I'd have them all. I know Ramesh would hold my hand and and uh, say, uh, "Calm down, uh, you're burning your paella," and then I would go and make sure I wasn't burning my paella. But I'd have them. I'd have them all. Do you know um, that you're the first Julie, person on this show to pick their mum and dad? I don't think any of these. Oh, really? No, not one person's picked a family member. So you're the first one to do that, which is. Oh, I, I find sickening. it unbelievable. Yeah. So, uh, um, si- no, sick- sickening of me. I've done for the audience the popular <laughs> vote, haven't I? Um, just that they've they they they've helped me out for so long. I wouldn't be able to do what I did. Yeah, my dad wanted me to do IT, yeah. but my mum always always believed in me, and my dad came around pretty quick. And they've just always been there for me. And they've always kind of like, and my dad wanted me to do IT as a backup. He wasn't sort of like, give up on your dreams. They've always encouraged me and my sister to sort of like follow what we wanted to do. Um, I wouldn't be here without them. Um, I, I wouldn't be the act I am without Alice Cooper. I wouldn't have like the homemade approach to what I do without Bruce Campbell and Evil Dead. Um, I wouldn't be here without the encouragement of uh, Harry Hill. I wouldn't be here without the friends like Ramesh. Um, you know, there's no women except for my mum, which I feel right. bad about. So I will say Julie Andrews as well, who is uh, not only uh, has she had a, like, a long and a huge career, uh, and not only has she starred in both Mary Poppins, uh, uh, Sound of Music, and The Princess Diaries. But uh, we share a birthday uh, on the 1st of October. And uh, yeah, I think uh, Julie Andrews would be good as well. Um, Magic. So those are, those are my list. Brilliant. And Nick, you've been a fantastic guest, honestly. And it's been brilliant to spend so Is that long all right? with you. It's been brilliant, mate. One thing that I would love you to do for me, if you could, um, see Romesh. Going to give him a wee text and tell him that this is the best podcast ever and ask him to come on it because I've been hassling his agent for months. I'll tell, I'll tell him to do that. Uh, yeah. If he ever replies to any of my messages, I'll tell him to, yes. Yeah, um, and tell oh, him yeah, come absolutely. and tell him really come to next week. Oh, yeah, right. I'll say, he's, yeah, all right, I'll do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I mean, I've literally just talked about myself for two and a half hours. So um, well, good luck with the edit. Thank um, you very much. And um, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure, mate. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes Podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes Podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes Pod at gmail.com. 
You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. If you 